Dear listeners, 2020 has been a difficult year for all of us. And as it draws to a close, we at the World Transformed wanted to give you something. A gift of sorts. So, get that wine a-mulling, get that fire roaring, and turn up your headphones for this, the TWTFM Christmas Special! Demand and build a Christmas transformed. TWTFM is back. Well, soon. We've been quiet for a few months working on a new series that will drop early next year. It's about leisure, free time, public space, and the joy of connecting with each other. Stuff we've been doing less of in 2020. We're really proud of how it's sounding, and we can't wait to share it with you. But for now, after this challenging year of plot twists, and in the spirit of festive giving, we thought it was only right that you, the listener, deserve a gift. TWTFM presents a special episode in search of the true meaning of Christmas. On the one hand, there's this Christmas of excess. Too much food, too much drink, a glut of gifts you don't really want or need. On the other, the Christmas of charity, of giving, of solidarity. A window of time at the end of the year where work stops, we meet with loved ones to give thanks and to give back. Like it or not, Christmas is here to stay. But which Christmas? This is a classic Dickensian tale of a Christmas transformed. It begins with everyone's favourite disaster capitalist and pantomime villain, Mr Jeff Bezos. Once upon a time, of all the good days in the year on Christmas Eve, old Jeff Bezos sat busy in his office atop Amazon's London headquarters. Jeff was in a bad mood. Christmas was the busiest time for his company, and he had to take precious minutes out of his schedule to review a short History of Christmas, a video he had recently commissioned for Amazon Prime's holiday-focused content. His office was stiflingly hot, unlike the conditions his workers faced in his fulfilment centres. From an array of monitors he could see his workforce. He saw them wheezing up and down, beating their hands upon their breasts and stamping their feet upon the icy floor so as to warm them. Come in, come in and close the door. Right, I'm a busy man and time, as they say, is money. (laughs) Show me what you've got. It's here, sir. And if you're sitting comfortably, we can begin straight away. Alexa, play the video. Playing History of Christmas video. A short history of Christmas. The precise date of the first Christmas celebration, like that of Christ's birth, remains hotly contested amongst theologians, but the 25th of December has been the chosen date since at least the 4th century. It's clear that many of the rituals we associate with Christmas, feasting, drinking and general merrymaking, took their cues from pre-Christian celebrations, which commonly fell on or around the midwinter solstice.
Midwinter solstice traditionally marks the shortest day of the solar year and heralds the return of warmer weather. Midwinter celebrations not only marked an end of the privations of hard winter months in Europe, but were also a coping mechanism, a way to reinforce the social bonds of kin and friendship that held life together during the austerities of wintertime. Christmas has served different social functions during its long history, sometimes reinforcing the dominant social values of society, sometimes subverting them. Christmas has often taken on ludic and transformatory characteristics that seem to threaten the rule of societies based on workplace discipline, class inequality and strict social hierarchies. During the High Middle Ages, the holiday had become so prominent inside Europe that chroniclers routinely noted where and how the various magnets celebrated Christmas. Many of the trappings we now associate with the festival, the singing of carols and gift-giving, can be traced to this period. It should be noted that in medieval Europe, gifts were primarily given to landowners from their tenants, a form of class deference that acted to cement the social hierarchies of feudal society. However, caroling had more subversive origins. Caroling was originally performed by a group of dancers who sang. The group was composed of a lead singer and a ring of dancers who would provide the chorus. Various medieval writers condemned caroling as a lewd act, one that indicated that the unruly traditions of Saturnalia may be returning. Saturnalia was a customary midwinter festival particular to the ancient Roman Empire that ran annually between the 17th and 23rd of December preceding the birth of Christ by about 200 years. This celebration was characterised by a class-based reversal of roles in which slaves were treated to a banquet usually only enjoyed by their masters. The two major themes of Saturnalia were abundance and equality. Ultimately though, no social norms were ever truly threatened or transgressed because everybody knew the celebration would eventually end and life and its social ordering would return to normal. In effect, Saturnalia acted to let off the steam of mounting class hostility. Does Christmas serve the same function today? Hang on, today? hold it, hold it. What's all this? This isn't the sort of Christmas message I'm asking for. Where is the focus on presents, toys, commerce? I'm running a business here, not a university. I'm, I'm sure you'd enjoy it if you just gave it a chance, sir. We'll see. Carry on, carry on. Misrule, be that drunkenness, promiscuity and gambling, all activities that ran counter to the prevailing drudgery of the social order, remained an important aspect of the Christmas period through the Middle Ages. Associating it with drunkenness and other misbehaviours, the Puritans banned Christmas in England during the 17th century. It was restored as a legal holiday in 1660, but it would remain disreputable until the Victorian period. In the early 19th century, the Oxford movement inside the Anglican Church ushered in, quote, the development of richer and more symbolic forms of worship, a revival aimed at increasing the centrality of Christmas itself as a Christian festival as well as developing special charities for the poor, in addition to special services and musical events. 
Hello, you there, boy. Me, sir? Yes, you, my good fellow. What day is today? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day, of course. Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. Charles Dickens and other writers helped in the revival of the holiday by changing the consciousness of Christmas and the way it was celebrated, emphasising the family, religion, gift-giving and social reconciliation opposed to the historic revelry in which the order of the world had threatened to be turned upside down. In the present, Christmas has once again become a generalisable midwinter celebration, marked and celebrated by families regardless of their religious belief or their lack thereof. As a public bank holiday mandated by the state, Christmas can be a welcome rest from the daily routine of work. However, the Victorian tradition of gift-giving, now attached to a rampant consumer capitalism and the expectation to provide a series of celebratory banquets, places enormous financial burden and stress on many families, with many entering debt to ensure the perfect Christmas. Debt is not only the only social ill to follow the holiday season, as rates of domestic violence and spouse abuse also unfortunately skyrocket. However, the holiday's focus on communal celebration, its centering on gift giving and the message of goodwill towards all acts to cast light on many of the ongoing social crises that remain buried just below the surface of everyday life. Christmas is often accompanied by an outpouring of social solidarity, with many giving up their time to volunteer with homeless charities or to work in local food banks. How we maintain this spirit of cooperation all year round and develop it beyond the charity model to a model predicated on reciprocal social solidarity and human flourishing remains an ever-pressing concern for socialists and progressives everywhere. Bezos furious at such communistic folly, grumbled aloud. Bah humbug. What was that nonsense? That wasn't what I asked for at all. Who is responsible for that? Uh, well, that would be me, sir. And your name is? Um, Bob Cratchit, sir. And the communists speaking? Well, they're from an organisation called The World Transformed. They, they do brilliant uh, festivals and interesting educational podcasts. Enough and, uh, already. Pack your bags, Bob. And get out. You're fired. Do I really have to do everything myself? But it's, it's, it's what you asked for, sir. A history of Christmas time, the holiday. It's Christmas, sir. I have a family to feed and presents still to buy. You, you can't do that. I've got rights. <laughs> you thought you had rights. Go away, you funny little man. Infuriated by the changes made for his Christmas scheduling, Jeff took himself home. Christ, he thought. Perhaps Netflix will win the Christmas Day rating wars after all. How intolerable. The fog and frost so hung about the windows of his palatial dwellings that it seemed as if the weather sat in mournful meditation on the threshold, with which old Jeff joined in contemplation. He was startled from his rumination by a ringing. Alexa, what's that ringing? Incoming call. Who is it? A Mrs. Emily Cratchit. Who? Hermanoy Thatchett, the woman from accounts? Patch her through. Call connected. Uh, Mr. Bezos? Yes? 
Uh, I'm sorry to bother you on Christmas Eve. Uh, my name is Emily. Uh, I'm the wife of Bob Cratchit. Who? Uh, the man you sacked today. Which man I sacked today? Madam, I sack thousands of people daily. You'll need to be more specific than that. Uh, Bob, sir, you asked him to find your content for a Christmas special? Oh, that clown. I'm ringing to ask you to reconsider your decision. Times are very tough. We're reliant on Bob's wages, as meagre as they are. Our son Tim is ill. Look, madam, I didn't make my money by begging people or asking for handouts. I saw opportunities and I took them. Your husband was lucky to have a job, as are the millions of ingrates I employ worldwide. But, 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 but nothing, madam. When I started my business 16 years ago, there was an opportunity. Mrs. Thatcher had done a sterling job, destroying the old industries and the unions, paving the way for the new industries like mine to take advantage of the changing times. Change and adapt, madam. Change and adapt is my advice to Bob and your family. Good day to you. Don't ring here again. Alexa, add that to my list of blocked numbers. And being, from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or the lateness of the hour, much in need of repose, Jeff went straight to his bed, without undressing, poured himself a cognac, and shut his eyes. How dare she ring me at home? What, does she think I run, a charity? Ugh! No more of this. <sighs> Alexa, play me something to send me off. Play me something relaxing, or I'll struggle to sleep again. Did you say TWTFM? Jessica Thorne and Seth Wheeler discuss mm. the miners' strike and Christmas. In March 1984, over 150,000 British coal miners went on strike to protest against plans for widespread closures in the industry. The strike, ultimately unsuccessful, lasted a year and was one of the most significant industrial disputes in British history. It was significant because the miners weren't the only losers. So too was the Labour Party and the extra-parliamentary left. Labour's Keynesian vision of society, based on full employment, a welfare state and nationalised industries, was brutally and successfully opposed by the new free market regime ushered in by Margaret Thatcher. By 1984, it was clear that the age of state ownership had come to an end. Before the defeat of the miners, came the privatisation of British Telecom. Many other previously protected or unionised industries followed suit in the years to come. I'm going down Although I am a Durham lad brought up in Bustico I'm going down Cos here the seams are all worked out And I don't want the dough I'm going down to Nottingham, good prospects are my goal. I'm going down, although it grieves me sore to leave the town and folk I know. The combination of depression and a massive restructuring of the economy produced on the left a crippling sense of disorientation and insecurity. Reflecting on defeat in his book, the Age of Extremes, the historian Eric Hobsbawm wrote, Since the 1970s, a number of mainly young and middle-class supporters have abandoned the main parties of the left for more specialised campaigning movements. 
notably the environmental movement, the women's movement, and the so-called new social movements, thus weakening the old party structures. There are many contemporary parallels with Hobsbawm's assessment of the left's defeat during the 80s. In some ways, it echoes the attack line of the Labour right in the 2019 election. Hobsbawm's critique of the young, new left, seemingly more frivolous and self-indulgent than the old, could be transposed onto those that dismissed the Corbynite movement as belonging to a metropolitan elite. For Hobsbawm, the defeat of what he called coal-filled Labourism created a political vacuum, one which began to be filled by the xenophobic and racist right. What happened in 1984 and 1985 tells a very different story to the one provided by Hobsbawm. His downbeat assessment rightly characterised the severity of the defeat, but the diagnosis seemed skewed when one looked at what sustained the miners' strike for 12 months. For alongside the industrial struggle, a large and diverse mix of social movements, many of them belonging to the new social movements derided by Hobsbawm, poured their energy into supporting the miners and their communities. This included the women who had been involved in the Green and Common Peace Camp, anti-racist organisations, unemployed workers' associations, working-class polytechnic students, and the well-known case of lesbians and gays support the miners. If you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money, it's friendship. When you're in a battle against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. The miners' strike was an important lesson in solidarity. Sustaining a strike has always required outside support. Indeed, Rarely has a strike dependent on internal trade union support alone been successful. To put it simply, a strike is a race between the workers and the company. The question is, who will crack first? The company, starved of labour and production, or the worker, starved of wages? It was this crucial question that was to become the source of sullen tension in pit villages in December 1984. So with Christmas and New Year fast approaching, many miners were torn between their support for the strike and their loyalty to their union, with the desire to provide their families and themselves with a traditional festive period. The National Coal Board took advantage of the already crippling economic pressures that had been lumped onto miners' families by applauding the half-empty buses of strikebreakers who were then returning to work. Winter on the picket line was beginning to bite. Well, I think the unions are obviously one body where a fanatical, tiny fanatical minority can and seem to be able to take over a whole union and then say that they represent the whole union. The miners desperately required solidarity. Union funds were drying up and public attention was drifting towards festive celebrations. The government and the coal board gave miners a simple choice. Stay on on the pickets or enjoy a traditional Christmas at home. Recognising the social pressure that Christmas placed on many mining families and the strike itself, a global wave of solidarity was mobilised in the spirit of the season. In November 1984, in London, members of the Westminster Miners Support Group dressed up as Father Christmas and protested outside Hamley's toy shop, illustrating the plight of the miners' children for whom toys were a luxury their parents could no longer afford. Four of the protesters were arrested. On the 7th of December, 
the Brixton Academy hosted Arthur Scargill's Christmas Party, a benefit gig for striking miners, which featured, alongside others, The Clash as headliners. As the strike continued into the Christmas period, solidarity would pour into the isolated pit villages from all across the world. In October, the French miners, belonging to the CGT Union, made a commitment to bring a 40 lorry convoy of food and a cheque for 700,000 francs in order to ensure that every British miner's child would get a toy for Christmas. As noted by the Scottish correspondent for the Morning Star on the morning of December 15th, 1984, Viva la France was the cry emanating from Scottish miners and their families that morning after receiving a mountain of toys. The packing cases in which these gifts arrived bore the legend, 300,000 parcels for the children of British miners. That's our solidarity. They're doing Christmas parties for the children, Aslef, train drivers. We've got uh, toys, I believe, coming from uh, Sogan 82. We are like one big family together in Penigaiba now because 75% of us are in all in the same position. They've all got somebody that's affected by this strike. And so we've got the spirit in Penrukaiba now is, well, it's like it was during the war then. Thousands of food parcels and toys arrived from France, West Germany, and even as far away as Afghanistan. In the small village of Bedlinog in southeast Wales, turkeys arrived in truckloads, financed by the Miners' Relief Fund. So, Christmas and class struggle really aren't as incongruous as some might think. Striking during the festive period is hard, but it's also a time where workers' power can be acutely revealed, even in periods of defeat and relegation. As noted by the well-known historian Edward Thompson, It is never safe to assume that any of our history is altogether dead. It is more often lying there, as a form of stored cultural energy. The instant daily energy of the contingent dazzles us with its brightness. And what passes on the daily screen is so distracting, the presence of the status quo is so palpable, that it's difficult to believe that any other form of energy exists. But this instant energy must be reproduced every moment as it is consumed. It can never be held in store. So let the power be cut off for a while. Then we become aware of other and older reserves of energy glowing all around us, just as when the streetlights are doused, we become aware of the stars. Christmas time, with its heavy emphasis on both community and the spirit of goodwill towards all, allows us to see more clearly the social bonds of solidarity that exist all year round, providing a focal point that unearths the often hidden histories of mutual aid, solidarity and compassion, ever present and ever necessary for any social struggle. Financially, I mean, we're not going to have the money to to spend out on the things we'd like to, but uh, the community, since we've been on strike, has, you know, come together a lot more. So I think with the community spirit, we'll have a better Christmas, actually, than we did last year. (laughs) 
Images of strike actions over Christmas time haunted Jeff's swirling dreams. He awoke in the middle of a prodigiously tough snow, and it was so dark that looking out of bed, he could scarcely distinguish the transparent window from the opaque walls of his chamber. He was endeavouring to pierce the darkness with his ferret eyes when the chimes of his Apple watch informed him it was Christmas morning. Ah, time for a gift, I think. No need for wrapping paper. I like my packages as they come, direct from the warehouse. Jeff went to his front door, where piled outside he found a great many brown boxes, all embossed with his own Amazon logo. He ripped greedily into the top box, but stopped in horror upon finding... A handwritten note? In one of my deliveries? What on earth is this? Jeff studied the note. In spindly handwriting, it read... Please help us. Alexa, Alexa! Get me someone who knows the meaning of this now. Okay. Calling Alan Bradshaw and Jonathan Kesselman. Thank you, Alexa. The phenomenon of Christmas shoppers finding secret letters inside their products from the laborers who produce them is quite a common occurrence. For example, last Christmas, six-year-old Florence Whittacombe from London found a note inside a pack of Tesco Christmas cards that read, We are foreign prisoners in Shanghai, Xingpu prison in China. We are forced to work against our wills. Please help and notify a human rights organization. Florence's mother, upon examining the letter, was shocked. Not by the fact that she discovered a clandestine note inside her festive multi-pack selection of greeting cards priced to sell at £3.50, but rather because whoever wrote the note didn't even have the decency to wish the family a Merry Christmas. Previously, the journalist and fraud investigator Peter Humphrey was detained at Xingpu for 23 months, and he claims that while there, he personally witnessed many of the imprisoned laborers concealing these notes as they were forced to make products for the fast fashion chains H&M, Primark, and CNA, among many others. When interviewed, Humphrey read aloud one such note. I hope you enjoy the sustainable recycled cotton blend fluffy knit hoodie that I hand-stitched personally while shackled to my workstation. P.S. This sweater was made with inferior materials and will fall apart after three washes. Next time, shop at Harrods. Yours, Xian Wang. In 2014, Karen Wasinska from Fermana found a note in a pair of pre-marked trousers that said, Our job inside the prison is to produce fashion clothes for export. We work 15 hours per day, and the food we eat wouldn't even be given to dogs or pigs. Karen, who owns a farm in Fermana, took umbrage with the letter. She said to BBC News, I don't know what all the fuss is about. On our farm, during harvest time, we sometimes work 17 or 18 hour days, and we actually feed our dogs and pigs quite well, thank you very much. In 2015, a note found in a pair of socks bought in Huddersfield claimed to be from a 34-year-old Chinese man who had been wrongly imprisoned for blackmail and that he and his wife had been tortured and his father killed. The socks were an over-the-calf wool blend, a delightful shade of red, and retailed for 10 pounds for the entire pack of three. Tesco, responding to the note found in Florence Whittacombe's Christmas card box, issued a PR statement saying, We abhor the use of prison labor and would never allow it in our supply chain. We were shocked by these allegations and immediately suspended the factory where the cards were produced and launched an investigation. As a company, Tesco will not stand for any evidence of forced labor and to demonstrate our position while we investigate, we have ordered our staff to work around the clock this Christmas without overtime pay or breaks to eat or to use the toilets. It is possible that these letters were all hoaxes. It is, after all, impossible to ascertain the veracity of the letters, but they were certainly regarded by the people who found them as plausible, yet deeply unsettling to their consumer experience over Christmas. These letters from China do more than remind us of our lack of concern with people who made the goods in our hands. 
They show us that repression occurs at the point of production as well as consumption, that the commodities in our hands may have been made by somebody whose labor may be compelled and who might be living in a prison-like workplace. The letters raise questions about globalized outsourced production and remind us that these goods have been made by people and that we typically repress our awareness of who these people are and what their working conditions are like. Lastly, if you liked any of the items featured in this article, you can use the promo code FORCELABOR2020 to receive a 30% discount on any goods from Tesco, Premark, or H&M. Check our websites for details. Terms and conditions may apply. Bezos grew to fear what else he might find on what was supposed to be a pleasant Christmas morning. He sits up to get his thoughts together and decides he needs something to calm his weary nerves. Alexa, turn on the television. Turning on television. Bezos finds his eyes adjusting to the blaze of unnatural ruddy light before settling and the image becoming clear. Ah, yes. TV, that's what I need. Calming TV. Now what's on? Ah, the Queen's speech. The best involved things good and proper about this miserable country. What the hell is this? Greetings, fellow citizens. My name's Hilary Wainwright. I'm an editor of Red Pepper magazine and website. And I'm giving this message just now from Hackney, where I'm a member of the Hackney South Labour Party. It's certainly been a very dismal year. An annus horribilis, as Mrs. Windsor once put it, after a particularly difficult year, including the death of her immensely popular daughter-in-law, Diana. It's not just the pandemic, though, that has made it so horrible and so tragic. A man-made tragedy, we must remember, an outcome of profit-driven food production and an unregulated food chain. What has also made this year so horrendous is the way that the COVID crisis has been managed by Mr Johnson with such careless contempt, turning desperate human need into a bonanza for corporate profit. I'm thinking here of Circo's £400 million contract. That's £400 million of public money for so disastrously managing track and trace. And alongside this, the super profits made by Amazon out of our enforced dependence on online shopping. In spite of these challenges, fellow citizens, our social creativity and human instinct for solidarity has not been crushed. We've surely been hugely cheered by the way that the collective intelligence of the many has broken through the chaos caused by the negligence of the few to provide mutual aid across our neighbourhoods, to redeploy aeroplane factories to make ventilators, and to exert extra effort and creativity on the front line to provide the care that was and is needed uh, in our rundown public hospitals. For it was, after all, comrades, that belief in the values and capacities of the many against the injustices of the few that was the driving force behind our support for fellow citizen Jeremy Corbyn. And it is these acts of solidarity which surely now must provide the lodestar for how our movement can be renewed and can renew itself. It is these initiatives 
prefiguring a society based on people's mutual needs rather than private profit that must drive our renewal and not the internal battle against a purge carried out by one of the most dire and uninspiring of Labour leaders ever. Of course, we must stand up for democracy and for free speech, but simultaneously we must engage our energies with reaching out to all those fellow citizens who this year and most likely over the festive season are through daily acts of kindness showing what a society for and by the many would in practice be like. We imagine ourselves as citizens and we behave as if we are standing up for democracy, freedom of speech and economic dignity. But in reality, we are subjects, subjects of a monarchical state. Our MPs are accountable not to us, the people, but to the crown in parliament, that is the British state. But here too is a source of good cheer, for we are seeing just now under the pressures of the pandemic, a speeding up of the breakup of the British state, whose loyal servants, after all, were so determined to prevent a true socialist from becoming prime minister. The movements for independence in Scotland and Wales are driven by a desire for democratic self-government and a revulsion from the co corruption, old and new, of Westminster. And the movement towards a united Ireland, a vital nail in the coffin of the British state, is increasingly pluralist and non-sectarian, breaking from the reactionary social prejudices of the past. Bring on the breakup of the British state is my message this Christmas in favour of the growing desire for democratic self-government in politics and in economics, and in favour of democratic states across the nations of Britain, which would support the grassroots solidarity we have witnessed this year, not block it. This will also mean an end to the monarchy, which sitting on top of our hierarchical society symbolises a unity which is in reality increasingly hollow. Buckingham Palace and all the vast royal residences will be transformed into urgently needed social housing. And we will exercise our right to roam across the thousands of acres of royal land turned into common land. In the meantime, friends and fellow citizens, let's build solidarity with our neighbours and our workmates, support the democratic rights of our comrades in the Labour Party, buy our books from Hive and local bookshops, subscribe to Red Pepper and support the world transformed. Enjoy yourself safely in the next few days. See you next year post-vaccine and let's exchange a comradely hug or two. the hell is going on today? Alexa, order me my Christmas dinner. That evening, Bezos ate his dinner alone and pondered on the strange events of the last 24 hours. Was this a portent of things to come? He had heard rumours of union organising inside his distribution centres. He was tired of listening to the concerns of workers. He was equally tired of hearing the complaints of ecologists about the environmental costs of his operation. Why wouldn't they all just shut up and enjoy the Christmas season? After all was said and done, 
That was the busiest time of his year. The time when Amazon made its most profit, and it had been a bumper year. Bezos became full of fear of losing his power, his worth. He suddenly felt a dark presence in the room. He pictured a solemn spectre, draped and hooded, coming like a mist along the ground towards him. But when he looked about him for the ghost, he saw it not. Yet the fear remained. Anxious that his future seemed utterly uncertain, he sought counsel. Alexa, conference call with everyone on my super forecasters list. Calling super forecasters now. Hello, my name is Kia Milbin. You may remember me from such podcasts as ACFM, the home of the weird left. Well, as well as our podcasting activities, we at ACFM also offer a a psychedelic futurism service in which we engage both the occult tombs of high theory and the, the low, low practice of sniffing the psychic aura of the working class. So after a an extensive research program, also known as walking to my bookshelves and getting down Four Futures by Peter Fraze. I can give you not one Christmas future, but two. The first Christmas we could call the Rentier's Paradise. A Christmas in which climate change has been addressed to the extent that it suits they're super rich, those who own assets. I mean, we're not all in it together. Uh, in a market system, your interests only count if you can pay. So this is a world, this rentier's paradise, in which the, only the most managed of democracies survive. Our current rentier's alliance between what we might think of as property pensioners and the super rich, that will break down over time as wealth centralises and houses are sold off to pay for elder care. 20 years of culture war will have sapped our will to live. If you want uh, an image of the future, picture an Oxford graduate saying he identifies as an attack helicopter on the BBC forever. In this renter's paradise, Christmas is still a special time. Although, although now it's now Christmas hour rather than Christmas day. Uh, We had the good fortune of KPMG uh, uh, achieving a 2,300% efficiencies at Christmas in the late 2020s. So on this Christmas day, I I have my Christmas dinner in uh, in a hab unit rented by the hour. I finish off my Bastani burger, as my um, lab-grown turkey is called these days. Then I have to go for my shift on the self-defence wall. I mean, we've got to keep those foreign germs out, you know. I'm late for my shift, so I, I call an Amazon Uber. You may be thinking a self-driving car. You're joking. Why would we invent technology? Why would we invest in technology when labour is so cheap? After my shift on the self-defence wall, I get back to my gig work, grading academic papers. If I work really hard, I should be able to pay off my Xmas Bastani burger debt by April 20. The alternative Christmas... The acid communist Christmas is a little more, a little more joyful, but it does contain its own challenges. I mean, Christmas is still a, a special time in the acid communist future. 
although we now call it the Winter Solstice 10-Day Bender. I finished my 15 hours work week already, so I'm going to head down to Stonehenge for the solstice with my friend uh, Arthur Mix. Can't go too wild, actually. I've still got to record an episode for the 20th season of ACFM on Boxing Day. Hope it's not like last year where I had to drag Jeremy out of a 24-hour gong bath. Eyes like saucers, he'd lost two fillings. Nightmare. Of course, we still give presents in the 24-hour in the acid communist future. Uh, I've booked some time in the community fabrication unit. I'm going to make uh, some dub plates for my mate Seth, downloaded some unused sounds. But before I get to that, I've got to go to some meetings. I mean, the trouble with democratic planning, it takes up too many evenings. There you go. Rentierism or acid communism. A tough choice, but those two futures are, are already pregnant in our present. My name is Sophie Lewis, and I'm a freelance writer and part-time feminist theory instructor. When the ghost of Christmas future took me by the hand, she showed me a border guard genetically testing a pregnant migrant and her little baby and her companion, Joseph, so as to ascertain whether they qualified for admittance to the land of family values. People stood waving signs in protest nearby, signs reading, Keep families together! But when the travellers turned out not to be an authentic biological family, according to the border scientists, they turned their backs and spat at the queer homeless people who were shouting something about, Why can't we just say, Keep people together! or Abolish borders! The ghost of Christmas Future and I followed these protesters down a street, papered with posters warning citizens about stranger danger and the threat of trans ideology. A street lit up with little holographic animations proclaiming proudly that refugees from the nuclear household had been denied a single penny that year and that family comes first, peppered with massive screens blaring pro-natalist infomercials and reminders about state-mandated reprotect programs that required all citizens to eradicate disability from their genetic clan's human capital portfolio. But then another ghost took me by the hand, and it was the spectre of future communism. Apparently, some people now still liked to organise their lives in quite small pods, but it was much more common to find groups of about 80 to 100 humans living in affiliated hives with all kinds of other species. The architecture of each hive would stack sound-insulated bedrooms for about one to five people and their companion non-human species around a giant central kitchen and laundry. Neighbourhoods also tended to have exquisite, fully furnished creches where people of all generations were expected to live and look after one another and be educated by one another according to a consensus curriculum for at least half of the year. On the walls, there were friendly visitors' guides explaining that inheritance, private property, and hence landlordism, 
were all highly frowned upon practices in this town as of that year, as was the practice of preventing children from benefiting from many parents. Further away from the water, there was an aromatic canteen where even more people were freely mixing and hanging out, playing, talking and eating, filtering through from what appeared to be an adjacent building, with loads of little intimate nooks and spaces, as well as a gigantic hall I later learned was the assembly room, whose vaulting arches were all covered in tiles, drawings and mosaics about a world in transformation. Hi, I'm James Butler. I co-founded Navara Media, where I still host Navara FM. Let me tell you about Alexi. Alexi is sitting around a tree with two young children. The kids are unpacking decorations for the tree from sturdy boxes where they glint, carefully packed like little jewels. Some of those decorations are old. Some were made by Alexi's parents when they themselves were children. Some of them have stories that go along with them. Some are more recent gifts from friends. One of the kids is old enough now that they'll spend a chunk of their winter lessons next year making an ornament, working with their hands, thinking about how you might imbue an object with meaning. But Alexi finds himself thinking... The tree has become, over the last century or so, a bit of a symbol, and like all strong culture symbols, evolved by taking on layer upon layer of meaning, without anyone in charge really ever laying down rules about what it means. You can see why. After the change, trees mattered, carbon capture and all that. But did that really explain why so many houses, like this one, had started to be built around living wood? He's proud of the workmanship that incorporates it. Though he spends most of his time as a writer, he spends one week a month as part of one of the Valley's house-building crews. Usually after a few weeks of writing, he's glad of work he can touch, even if it leaves his muscles sore. There are houses not far from here where living branches curl round infill, made from the rubble of the old Palace of Westminster. Those were good to build. Yes, the tree. Before the change, people used to hack off bits of trees and bring them inside in winter. He prefers the living one, but he can see why you might do it. It's funny to think of them living in their plate-glass cities, sick with capital, sick with work, sick with the mania of speed. You can see why they might have hungered for trees, their slow organic majesty, their life. If you walked out of this house right now and looked down the valley towards the city, you'd see in the distance a lot of those same buildings from that time. One of them was once the tallest building in Europe. Its razor lines are now softened with the organic swell of the vertical farm, which has long since replaced its luxury hotel. He lifts one of the kids to hang a decoration on one of the tree's higher branches. It's one of the decorations that commemorates an ancestor, some biological, some cultural or collective, some more myth than history. Music he had scarcely noticed in the background breaks off. One of the kids had been learning ragas in school and they'd sent him home with a keyboard to play over the long winter break. They must have seen their mum pulling in on her bike, his sister. He'd been caring for her kids for the past month while she attended the quarterly regional parliament. Honestly, he hated some of the stories she'd come back with, the ego, the squabbling. Even while she'd thrill over plans for new carbon scrubbing tech or lose sleep over the periodic fears and resentments and hatreds which still pass through the community, he'd be pleased when she reached her two-term limit. He thought she might be, too. 
happy at least to be here, hungering perhaps for the local winter festival party, the three days of food and music and dancing for everyone, by everyone, infants to ancients, local and passerby alike. Yes, how different a branching the world could have taken. But let me tell you too about Marina in Another World. It's 11pm on 23rd of December and Marina's on her way home, waving her Amazon Unipay chip across the sensor and shrugging down into the seat on the TFL budget bus. She'd usually pay a bit more to use the Uber tube, which gets you to zone six a bit quicker, but she's saving for presents for the kids and she's worried about rent and she's worried that the government will cut basic pay again and she's worried about putting credit in the NHS Plus account for the COVID-43 vaccine. Sometimes all she thinks she does is worry. At least her health score isn't too bad. She gets a gold star ping every time she walks home through the park with a little voice that says, green is good for you, don't be a drain on our precious resources. But there's less green than there used to be. Things don't grow as well there anymore. The winter's not cold enough and the summer's too hot. In the middle of it, a huge artificial tree, the same as last year's. It has lights thrown around it, but the battery's gone or someone's robbed the photo cell to flog. It looks forlorn. She knows things could be worse. They've got really good synth turkey and good real potatoes grown in soil. And the family's around and between her savings and her mum's Bezos fund pension, the kids will enjoy it. It's not nothing. They can't afford lab-grown meat, but then who can these days? Back when you could go into Zone 1 freely, she used to walk around the food halls. But that was years ago now. She has two days off, the last of the six days holiday you get with an official government job. Cushy, really. Yes, things could be worse. When the government brought in Operation Lifeboat, when it decided to close the borders after the famous failure at COP30, everyone predicted chaos. But the truth is things got greyer, smaller, meaner. There were cruelties, sure, but you only heard rumours about what went on in the White Cliffs border integrity centres and out in the seas. Wasn't the government doing the best it could? Didn't we deserve to survive? And she had work. Machine officer at the Prime Employment Plus exchange. More than a lot of people got. And it was easy. All you had to do was stand there and take the tickets from the machine and give them to people. Sometimes you might feel a little surplus to requirements. But lots of jobs were like that these days. And it meant she could afford the rent, multiple rooms as well, in one of the former office blocks turned housing, which now dot the outskirts of the city. And if you made sure you didn't look too glazed over and and your supervisor didn't notice, you could listen to broadcasts while you were doing it. It used to be that all you could get on broadcasts were the official channels, but someone at work had showed her how you could tune into the other channels. She'd been listening to things at work about what was really going on in the government. She listened to people arguing that cuts to basic pay actually really weren't necessary after all, that there might be another way to live. It all seemed starry-eyed, maybe, like hearing a message from another universe. But she couldn't shake the thought that there was something in it. She trips on the pavement. It's not that there's frost or snow. The winters are too warm for that, really, now. Just that the council never really fixes things anymore. Never any money for it. She looks down at the paving slab and sees the crack running down it, out of which flares green and white some long-determined, long-working, long-growing in darkness, the root of a tree. Bezos wants to ensure the negative future is the one that wins. He will fight class war. 
will you? Class War. Would you like me to add this to your Amazon wish list? You've been listening to A Christmas Transformed, a special festive gift from TWTFM. In the new year, we'll return proper with a new series on the topic of leisure. Make sure you're subscribed to TWTFM wherever you listen to podcasts to ensure you're ready when the first episode is released. But for now, from the TWTFM team and the wider World Transformed Network, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Stay safe and we'll see you in 2021. Ho, ho, hoin! TWT presents A Christmas Carol, A Christmas Transformed was produced by The World Transformed. Chloe Massey played the narrator. Enyi Okoronkwo played Jeff Bezos. Nora Lopez-Holden played Emily Cratchit and Alexa. Sam Swan played Bob Cratchit. We heard contribution from Jessica Thorne, Seth Wheeler, Alan Bradshaw, Jonathan Kesselman, Hilary Wainwright, Sophie Lewis, James Butler and the inimitable Kim Milburn. The World Transform relies on you. So head to theworldtransform.org to become a supporter now. Subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you in 2021.